Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrans. Wrapping up Women in Construction Week. Those in the trades making a difference. And today on the show, we check in with the president of Actors Equity and the first woman in the country to start a union side law firm. Welcome to the Friday, March 10th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Kate Schindel, Kate, president of Actors Equity, actorsequity.org. This is a union that was founded back in 1913. They represent more than 51,000 professional actors and stage managers across the country. She's been president since 2015, and Kate is the youngest member ever to hold the highest-ranking position on Equity's Governing National Council and the third woman in the union's history, elected to the office, so it's only appropriate that she's one of our featured speakers in March, since March is Women's History Month. Well, we have a lot to go over with Kate. I'm going to talk about the new contract with uh, Broadway, which they recently reached. It's a three-year deal. And keep in mind, this was tough to negotiate because Broadway was shut down during the pandemic. So that was very, very difficult. National Endowment for the Arts Actors' Equity got a chunk of money from that organization. Traveling actors fighting to stay union, that's been very difficult. She'll explain what's going on there. And another issue we're going to get into is Swing Day. You're wondering, what the heck is Swing Day? Well, the union recently celebrated their eighth annual Swing Day, and that's when members learn multiple parts and are on standby in case somebody gets sick. they got to jump in there and handle that. So Kate's going to be our first guest. Later in the show, we're going to check in with Joyce Goldstein of Joyce Goldstein and Associates, JoyceGoldsteinLaw.com. Joyce has been practicing labor law for, my gosh, four decades now. And today, instead of talking about like the National Labor Relations Board rulings, and there have been many, lots of organizing, unfair labor practice charges, what we're going to do essentially is going to talk about how Joyce got involved in labor law. Now, here's a woman that comes from New Jersey. She goes to law school in uh, West Virginia, and then she gets recruited by a law firm to come to Cleveland. Now, this was back in uh, 1983. And in 1986, Joyce Goldstein started her own law firm. All right? By doing that, she became the first woman in the country to start a union-side labor law firm. That's what she uh, primarily practiced. And she didn't even realize how historic that was until years later when the AFL-CIO said, you know what, you're the first in doing this. Isn't that amazing? And (laughs) Joyce has been on the show a long time, didn't even realize the historical nature of what she was able to accomplish. So uh, Joyce Goldstein will be our second guest on the show. You know, since this is the last day of Women in Construction Week, there's a couple of women that I'd like to uh, feature here in the next couple of minutes. And the first one would be Royetta Sanford. 
Royetta oversaw the first international women's conference for the IBEW. This is back in 1997. Since then, she convened a committee on women's issues and launched a department within the IBEW international office focusing on women's and civil rights. She then served as the first director of that department. Then there's Erica Stewart. Erica, back in 1998, joined the Boilermakers. This would be local 693 at the Ingalls Shipbuilding Yard in Mississippi. This is after serving in the U.S. Army. Throughout her career as a union boilermaker, she has consistently stepped up to advocate for other tradeswomen in many official and unofficial capacities. She also ascended into higher leadership roles and made it a priority to offer her hand to lift up future tradeswomen leaders. Erica Stewart leads the Boilermakers Women's Committee and is a member of the Tradeswomen Committee of the North America Building Trades Unions. Just a couple of women that have made a big difference to women in organized labor, especially the trades. All right, quick break. Kate Schindle of Actors' Equity coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to our live line right now. Welcome back to the show. It's been about a year now that we had this lady on the show. And I'll tell you, all the month of March, we're focusing on women labor leaders. And for good reason, because March is Women's History Month. And there's a lot of women in labor that have made history, and one of them is Kate Schindel. Kate was elected president of Actors' Equity in May of 2015. She is the youngest member ever to hold the highest-ranking position 
on their governing council, national council, and the third woman in equity's history elected to the office. Kate Schindel, welcome back to America's Workforce. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I actually, I confess we're we're on this uh, trip of legislative visits in California, so I've been feeling like I was running on fumes, but you seem to have uh, energized me just uh, (laughs) just getting on the phone with you. So thank you for that. I I try to do that with my guests because, uh, you know, I come (laughs) from rock and roll radio back in the 70s and the 80s. So I, 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 I still and I hope to keep that energy alive in me. And I really love doing the show. By the way, this show will be celebrating 30 years. We started in Cleveland, Ohio, on a small radio station in uh, 1993. And uh, I've been hosting it for 25 years and almost three years now podcasting. And the podcasting has really taken off. So it's it's all good. And it seems that everything is going in the right direction for uh, Actors' Equity Association. I've been following you on your on a various websites. And let's, let's start off with this uh, new contract that you secured yeah. for uh, Broadway performers. That uh, that was a, a labor of love, no pun intended there. Can you talk about that? Well, sure. I mean, it, it was hard. It was a hard negotiation. Um, our, our workforce is not entirely back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, anytime you have anything that depends on gathering large groups of people in mostly small indoor spaces, um, it, it, it just it's just complicated in the age of COVID. And when you have some, uh, you know, issues like ventilation and, um, and, you know, sort of crowd management and proximity and uh, social distancing, um, it, it is, it has not been the easiest thing. We're about, we're up to about 70% of our pre pandemic work weeks union wide, but, but it continues to grow. So that's great. Um, and, you know, along with that, uh, Broadway in particular has historically been very dependent on international tourism, for example, which, although I am not a an international tourism expert, uh, I would say it's, it's fair to say that that is not back to pre-pandemic levels. So we went into a negotiation uh, knowing our members wanted to continue to work, but also that they really wanted uh, some significant improvements on our collective bargaining agreement. And with an employer that, you know, on the face of it has significantly um, lower uh, ticket revenue than they did the last time we negotiated this contract in 2019. But we did make real gains in the areas of equity, diversity and inclusion. Uh, We got uh, significant for us. um, And I think in the grand scheme, uh, salary increase of, you know, I believe it was uh, a three-year contract, and the increase was 5%, 4%, 4%. So we felt good about that. Uh, we're in the midst of negotiating uh, our our national touring contract right now and creating a unified touring agreement, and none of it's been easy. None of it's been easy. Like I, I feel like I remember that life used to be easy sometimes, and <laughs> I eagerly await the day that that comes back, but we uh, – <laughs> We, we, we did get a new contract. It's also interesting because, you know, historically our contract um, ratification of the production contract has been almost pro forma. And this one was a closer vote. Um, I, I couldn't tell you the exact percentages off the top of my head, but I think it's good for us. And it's good for our employers to know that our members are paying close attention. They're not 
kidding. They're not exaggerating when they say that, you know, the scheduling is really difficult. Uh, we made some improvements there as well. Uh, we need to, to improve, continue to improve quality of life. And they're not just going to vote for something um, in the way that uh, they have in the past. I think that gives mm-hmm. us leverage and um, the ability to have real continuing conversations about what, what we need to make a living in this industry. Kate, I have to inform our listeners again that uh, you're a former Miss America. Uh, oh, do you to, have uh, to? Okay. <laughs> I, I have to. 1998, <laughs> but I, I have to throw I have to throw this at you. What you just laid on us about Broadway. Did you ever think back then that you would be ne- <laughs> be part of this process of negotiating contracts like this? Well, not specifically. Right. But, you know, I I was lucky enough to be Miss America in an era that was very, very activism driven. Like I'm I'm in Sacramento right now and um, we're working on legislative visits for a a funding uh, ask uh, that would help particularly smaller theaters in California. And Mm -hmm. they introduced me um, today in a session. And I remembered that in January of 1998, which was five years ago, um, I was introduced, I believe, on the floor of the assembly then as well. So the, the reason that I raised that is because that year I spent about 90% of my time advocating for HIV prevention and education. And so it was, you know, lobbying and talking to students and fundraising for not-for-profits. And um, so did I know that I was going to end up running for the presidency of my union? No. Um, Did I know that I would be um, negotiating collective bargaining agreements or or anything like that? Not specifically, but that year taught me a lot about uh, how important it is for us to use our voices and how, and and kind of how to do it. Um, So they're more related than a lot of people would assume. Um, I think Mm -hmm. of that year as Miss America is like my first year of, adulthood and a really whirlwind introduction to how to, you know, hold the line for important things that'll make people's lives better. Um, so it is, yeah. it is, it is pretty connected. Yeah. It's, it's similar and it's different at the same time. It's, it's interesting, but you use your position uh-huh. as being Miss America and, and you use it in the right way. You were very vocal about some social issues and it's important that people that are in those positions do that. If we, if you don't mind, I want to go back to that national touring contract, and and that's that's yeah. a sticky issue because apparently, yeah. various uh, places that the actors go, let's put it this way, they're not union friendly, and uh, uh, they, they can can you speak to that? I mean, explain that part to our audience because on Broadway you're okay, but you go to other parts, it's a little different story. Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree with you that, um, you know, in many places, not just touring, but, uh, but including touring, uh, that our, our actors and stage managers work, um, you hear terms like right to work. Um, and people are really uh, positive about things like right to work. Um, the fortunate thing when it comes to the tours is that most of them, originate uh, and the, the employers are based in union, more union-friendly places. Like, um, 
a lot of them uh, come out of New York or the employers who um, who organize them are are headquartered in New York. So we are not going from place to place on a national tour with a different um, sort of a different level of union friendliness in our contracts. Our contracts cover the whole country and they tend to refer to New York laws, which is good. Um, now, I will I will also say that there are a lot of our members who live and work in right to work states where that can be a, a real challenge because, you know, there, there are any number of uh, folks who will tell workers that, you know, oh, no, right to work just means that you don't have to join the union to work the contract. I mean, you and I know mm -hmm. that that is true everywhere. Um, and so I, I always get, I guess, a little frustrated, but also recognize the opportunity to say, okay, so I know that the employer told you that. Um, that's true everywhere. Uh, what right to work is, is trying to starve unions of funds so that we can't represent you in your workplace as well as we would like to. Um, and and for that, I am very grateful to um, people who have, have taught me about these things. Like I, <laughs> I remember sitting at a bar in, I think it was Pittsburgh, with a stagehand friend uh, and him explaining to me why I should not be ordering a particular beer that I was thinking of ordering. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cultural uh, cultural inheritance, I think, passed from yeah. you know labor-friendly people to each other. <laughs> I totally understand that. I want to switch gears here a little bit, Kate, and talk about uh, Swing Day. And I just read yeah. a couple of weeks ago that uh, your union celebrated the eighth annual Swing Day. And what we're talking about, not uh, not members swinging here in, in one sense, but <laughs> apparently doing multiple parts, uh, standbys. So obviously uh, they know the part. And I, I tell you what, I, I saw this happen. My family took me to Hamilton in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, yeah? Right before, oh, what my gosh, what a performance. And uh, right. that, that happened there. That happened there. Mm -hmm. uh, the the mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson character was not feeling well and boy you would not even know the difference it was just amazing right. just amazing but right. but talk to me about that part and and I, that's kind of cool that uh, that this has been going on were you part of that to get this going or what you know i can't take credit for swing day we have a really passionate and uh influential uh advisory committee on chorus affairs and swing day is really their baby but of course i am thrilled to recognize swings and understudies and standbys um you know so in case your listeners don't know so i think most people know what an understudy is i'm not feeling well someone is going to do my role that night instead of me i'm going to stay home till i feel better and that's an understudy an understudy can be someone and i have been an understudy my first broadway show is an understudy i played a different role in the show every night uh, but when one of the leads was out i did that role there are also what we call standbys who are people who are not typically in the show um, unless somebody is out injured on vacation and etc and uh, sometimes an offstage understudy or a standby will know multiple roles that they can do depending on what is needed, which is hard, right? The people, mm -hmm. you know, you're sort, of, you're sort of waiting in the wings to go on for one of, let's say, the three characters you know how to do in a really technically demanding show um, 
with as little as 30 minutes notice and sometimes less during uh, the reopening because COVID testing and things like that uh, often left very little wiggle room on timing. Okay, and then there are swings. Um, what swings do, swings may cover a principal character, but the really remarkable thing about swings is that they are typically offstage covers, although most of them are in shows uh, at, at any given time because there, there has been so much, um, you know, residual effect of COVID. And swings can do one role if they need to, or they can do um, what's called a split track, which means that they can cover different pieces of different people's show at the same time. Uh, so imagine, you know, you're covering your, your swing and you're covering three different ensemble members. And so for the opening number, you're going to go on as ensemble member one. Uh, for the, you know, the third number you're on as ensemble member two, et cetera. But all of those tracks also have, you know, the choreography may be reversed uh, from, you know, what it would be if you were someone else. They may be in a different spot on the stage. You may have to run um, stage left for your quick change instead of stage right. Uh, and instead of singing, you, you know, you might be singing the melody in one song and then, you know, the alto harmony in another song, and you have to make it look as if nothing is amiss. Um, that is, I mean, I wasn't even that good at waiting tables. Like, I tried and I liked it, but I wasn't good at it. Remembering, like, which table wanted the ketchup and which one their grilled cheese was cold and uh -huh. they needed another grilled cheese. Um, so it's like running... <laughs> It's like running a really hard station, except uh, in front of, you know, 2,000 people with full technical elements and, you know, uh, 30 other people on a stage. It's yeah. insane. But it ends when you can cover that many people. Sometimes they're reticent to promote you to cover just one. I mean, not promote you, but like move you into an onstage all the time, uh, you know, single character role because it's really hard to replace the person who can do three or four or five. And uh, they can keep like up to, you know, eight or 10 different tracks or roles in their head at a time. That might be more than your audience ever wanted to know about swings or ever thought they <laughs> needed to know about swings, but that's why they get a day. Yeah. Yeah. And they only get one salary for all that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, there, there are things we still need to achieve. Um, we went really hard to try and limit the number of uh, the number of tracks that a swing could be required to do in a single show, and we did make a little bit of progress on that, but still not enough. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, across the board, we need to continue to work on that and to get coverage in some of our contracts where. Um, where there aren't any understudies, where people feel like they can't call out, or you know, for stage managers who rarely have any coverage. So there's there's always a new mountain to climb. Yeah, you, you've made a lot of progress, but there's always more to do. Boy, I tell you, you painted mm -hmm. a great picture of uh, of uh, Swing Day there. And all I can think well, of, that's sheer, sheer talent, sheer dedication, and obviously a whole lot of focus for that to uh, happen. Oh. 
Kate, I got to take a quick break here. Kate Schindel joining us on our live line today. She is president of Actors Equity, the Actors Equity Association, which was founded 110 years ago, 1913. Mm -hmm. ActorsEquity.org is a website. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A.org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without ironworkers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained ironworkers and 20,000 apprentices, the Ironworkers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Ironworkers, the sky's the limit. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms now. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to our live line. Joining us from California today is Kate Schindel who is the president of Actors Equity, actorsequity.org. As I indicated, March is Women's History Month. We're talking about women who have made a difference in organized labor, and Kate is doing that every day. I, uh, I saw a story here recently about the National Endowment for the Arts, and it's a good story because you're getting more money than the last time that they uh, yeah. came up with some dough from the coffers there. So why, well, first of all, why don't you explain uh, this process? Do you apply for this kind of thing? And what kind of money are we talking about here, Kate? So we've been pushing for steady increases in NEA funding um, for as long as I can remember. And, you know, it's still within, within the world of uh, a federal budget. It's still a relatively small number. Uh, I think that the, uh, the number in the budget this year uh, is $207 million, right? Um, so there are certainly other industries uh, that, that get more funding, but we are, we are happy to see that number continuing to move upward. Um, the NEA funds uh, arts 
related projects and theaters and, uh, you know, other, other kinds of cultural institutions in every congressional district in the country. And though it's not always a ton of money, NEA funding uh, has some really great things going for it. First of all, um, they have steadily built things like wage protections uh, into their funding requirements, uh, you know, worker-friendly, sort of union-neutral type things. Um, uh, but also, it can be really valuable seed money because it, it, getting money from the National Endowment for the Arts allows uh, allows a theater or allows a cultural institution to, to sort of use that stamp of approval to go raise money elsewhere. So it's it's incredibly important. We continue to emphasize with funding across the board that arts funding should reach the workers, uh, not just, you know, capital projects, uh, like a nice new lobby. We love new lobbies, but we like workers more. Um, and, uh, and that's part of the reason we're here in California, actually, um, because there's a Senate Bill 1116 that Governor Newsom signed last year that now needs to be funded. Um, here in California, especially in the wake of AB5, uh, there are a lot of small theaters that have been really struggling with how to make the jump to having everyone on payroll. Like that, just that, just the payroll cost is significant and daunting. And for the first time I can remember, we've formed a really, uh, really compelling coalition with our employers uh, to say, you know what, we all think this is a good idea. California has historically underinvested in the arts, although it has gotten uh, it has gotten better, um, particularly the live arts, because obviously California uh, gives a lot of tax credits to film and TV production. Um, but these these theaters serve as the hub of communities of all sizes all over the country. And sure. when a theater is successful. It helps the restaurants and the bars and the parking garages and sort of all the small businesses around the theater. It creates jobs. Um, many times, uh, if the neighborhood changes, that means that, you know, the city will receive uh, presumably uh, more in property tax revenue. Um, so it's, it's really in everybody's interest to invest in these organizations that are that want to pay their workers. Uh, so it's a, this one's a payroll tax, uh, sorry, a payroll cost reimbursement, it's called the Equitable Payroll Fund, um, payroll uh, cost reimbursement that's structured so that the smallest theaters uh, would receive the largest reimbursement and the reimbursement would be scaled back as they grow. Obviously, the goal is for them to be able to operate um, in the nonprofit sphere, but without this kind of payroll support, they just need help getting there. So Senator Portentino here has been really great, and uh, we're just sort of blazing through legislative visits. Um, and the uh, but but uh, but you you came on the calendar, and I was like, okay, I'll take a, I'll take a little time away for Flash. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, we're just like from one office to the next. Pretty awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know that money you referenced, the, the $207 million, you probably should know this. The Pentagon will probably spend that in about five minutes. You know that. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, yeah, the, um, you know, it's interesting because um, arts and entertainment is, is actually a bigger sector of our economy than things like transportation or warehousing or um in, uh, I, I believe agriculture, but but nobody blinks it uh, at the idea of giving farm subsidies. 
because they know they're important. What we are constantly trying to do is stress that, yes, people actually make their living and support their families or try to in the arts. These these are middle-class jobs. This is not, right. you know, a, a bunch of folks who just never got tired of playing dress-up. I mean, it may be that, too. Uh, you know, costumes are fun. But um, but you're also supporting, you know, the like the actors and, and the stage managers, but, the you know, the stagehands and the musicians and the admin staff of the theater, um, and the box, the people that work at the box office and take the tickets. And, you know, it, it's uh, it's a much broader spectrum than I think people think of when they hear about arts workers. All right, Kate, one more story here. And I don't know if you have time. I know you're busy in uh, in Sacramento, but uh, Los Angeles, it, it's a bit of a drive away. And uh, what's happening in Los Angeles is a story about strippers organizing. I caught this a couple of months ago, and I said, oh, I can't wait to talk to Kate Schindel about this. <laughs> and I'm, I, I know your PR guy is going to get one of, the, uh, one of the strippers on the show here. I believe her name is Velvita. Awesome. Is, she, is, is she the top yeah. organizer there or what? One of them, yeah. We've got a couple. Um, Velvita is amazing. Um, I actually am going to Los Angeles tomorrow, although it's a rally for uh, – for the payroll fund, I have been there a number of times to be on the picket line with these dancers and um, and be part of like when they had their uh, vote count, which um, you know they, they came to us last summer through um, our outside legal counsel in Los Angeles, and they had been already picketing their club for months. Um, they want union representation. And, it, you know, it, it was, I just thought it was fascinating and really exciting um, because, you know, they were very upfront about the fact that they were interested in a union that really wanted to represent them. Now, I believe, and I'm sure you believe, that every worker who wants a union deserves a union. Um, yep. And there are plenty, plenty of those people to go around. Um, and also, um, you know, they are conscious and expressed um, recognition of the fact that that industry is stigmatized and, and that that stigma has historically hurt their ability to get the same kind of rights and protections that workers in other industries have. Um, we looked at it uh, as an interesting fit because most unions don't have like clauses in their existing contracts about, you know, what to do if there's broken glass on the stage or about audience interaction or about, um, you know, nudity at auditions. Uh, we do. So, you know, the strippers don't do exactly the same kind of work as performers do in a, you know, traditional uh, theatrical play or musical, but there were enough similarities for us to say, yeah, we should do this. Uh, and and we should do it enthusiastically. And I'll tell you what, I wish every single member of our union could get to spend time with these workers the way I have, because they, it's just entirely different when watching people fight for a union um, instead of just having to fill out a piece of paper and write a check like I did. They're not taking any of this for granted. They're students of the labor movement. Um, their solidarity is incredible. Um, and they have been at it for a long time. They're, I think the next NLRB hearing is 
I believe it is early March. Um, and I, I have found them incredibly inspiring and energizing. They're also not for nothing. I probably shouldn't be surprised by this. They're really good at organizing. I mean, on that picket line, when, you know, people walk down the street either to try to go into the club or they're just passing by, uh, more often than not, they end up on the picket line. Because if you think about what someone who works in a strip club does for a living, um, they they engage people like and, and they do it on a picket line too. Um, it, it's just <laughs> it's just remarkable. They talk to people who are are coming to go into Star Garden, um, and and those people end up on the sidewalk uh, holding a sign saying these workers decide that deserve rights. Um, it's. You know, the other thing is our, our industry gives a lot of awards to stories about, you know, sex workers, burlesque performers, nightclub performers. You know, we have lots and lots of shows about that. My, you know, in my first Broadway show, I played a sex worker and I understudied another character who was also a sex worker, you know. And, um, and so w- what I said to our council was, you know, the, these dancers are coming to us asking for similar protections to the ones I got when I was pretending to do their work. And that's just really compelling. Um, we're also uh, organizing at the, the lecturers at Griffith Observatory. You know, we've really started to look at um, types of live performance that aren't exactly like doing theater, but are essential uh, and, you know, live in nature. Um, this isn't, that's not new for us. We have contracts that cover, you know, people who sing at a convention or improv performers, uh, people who work at theme parks. But, um, but the lecturers had a, I believe, 100% yes vote on uh, whether or not to authorize a union. And so we're waiting for, like, the city of L.A.'s sort of unique process uh, to move along. And... I'm really optimistic. It's it's super exciting. Well, Kate, obviously you're good at your job. And, you know, I got the impression you're having fun doing your job as well. So keep yeah. doing what you're doing. Yeah. I love, I love it. You. And by the way, those of you listening right now, we've got a big presence with the podcast in the state of California. And again, it's the Star Garden Topless Dive Bar, which is located in North Hollywood, the North Hollywood neighborhood of Los Angeles. So uh, if you're driving yeah. by that area, I'm sure you'll get engaged and probably end up on the picket line with the with the strippers yeah. there. And yeah, and we will definitely yeah, follow they, up on that. Yeah, and they have a um, they have a pretty active Instagram account. If any of your listeners, I'm sure some of them are on Instagram. I think it's at Stripper Strike NoHo. Uh, so you can see what they've been up to. Um, their picket lines have always been themed. So my favorite is the night that they dressed up as all the club's OSHA violations. Um, uh, so, you know, one of them dressed up as a cockroach and one of them dressed up as, you know, broken glass. And you should ask Velveeta about that because they've been really creative. <laughs> Dress up as an OSHA violation. I love it. Yeah. Kate, you're awesome. Thank you so much for joining us here on America's Workforce. Again, the website is actorsequity.org. You take care, stay safe, and stay in touch, okay? Thank you. You too. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to link up with labor lawyer Joyce Goldstein. 
This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Lyuna. Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. You're listening to America's Workforce, and this upcoming segment is brought to you by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. Check them out online at oft-aft.org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's cwad4.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. This would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to line number two right now. Welcome one of our regulars, although we missed her last month because she's always traveling around the country working on first contracts for a lot of organizations, doing a lot with uh, nonprofits. In fact, we talked about that in uh, past shows. But right now, let's uh, link up with Joyce Goldstein, Joyce Goldstein and Associates. JoyceGoldsteinLaw.com is the uh, website. And Joyce has been practicing for uh, over four decades now. And this being Women's History Month, we decided to be just a little bit different. And I know Joyce got involved in the law back in the late 70s when she went to law school. But, you know, she is... uh, She's got a history of her own and is quite a historical figure in the United States because in 1986, she started her own law firm and was the first woman in the United States to start a union-side labor law firm. That is historic. Joyce Goldstein, welcome to America's Workforce. That's pretty cool that you started to do that. uh, Let's reflect on that time in your life. Go ahead. Sure. Thanks, Flash. Well, uh, it's, it's, I've just always been so fortunate to be able to do work that I love and believe in. And I, uh, when I started practicing law here in Cleveland, Ohio, as a union side labor lawyer in 1984, I really loved the work, but didn't particularly love working at the law firm where I was at that time. And so after a couple of years, decided I would just try to do it on my own. And so, as you said, in 1986, 
I started my own law firm, uh, completely dedicated to representing unions and workers, and only later learned, actually through the AFL-CIO, that I was the first woman in the country to ever have done that. Others had done it with men um, or became affiliated with law firms that men had started or women had worked uh, in-house at different legal departments for various unions, but um, apparently there was nobody else who uh, hung out a shingle and said, as, as a woman, I'm going to try to make a go of this as a, as a law firm. And here you are so many years later, you know, helping so many unions out. I know you did a lot with the trades. Well, let, let's talk about the, the people that really played an instrumental role in getting you started. Wasn't that the, uh, the communication workers of America? And what was it that they, they, you shared some office space with them then? Can you talk about that? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Uh, my very first client uh, when I started the firm was Local 4340 of the communications workers. And they had, at that time, just created uh, Local 4340. It was a merged union from several other locals in the Cleveland area. And I had contacted all of the unions that I met in the time that I was here in in Cleveland and had been doing union-side work. And when I contacted the CWA local, they said that uh, this merger had happened and they just were moving into new offices and downtown Cleveland, and they had extra room. So if I wanted to come move in with them and work out a barter deal, that they would provide office space in exchange for my representing them, and that they would then, in turn, also take me around and introduce me to other unions and learn to be part of the labor movement. And I will forever be grateful to CWA for being my very first client. Well, then what was really great was, as I said, the CWA did take me out and about in the community, and I met a lot of other unions. And and I also went to every event that I could possibly think of. I would show up at picket lines. I remember going to a Toys R Us picket line that construction unions were having as they were about to be building a Toys R Us store in Northeast Ohio, and they were building it non-union. And I think that the construction union representatives who were out there were pretty surprised to see at that time a young woman who they didn't know showing up on their picket line in solidarity with them. And uh, and it made a big difference because then some of those unions contacted me to see if I'd be interested in being their lawyer. And after CWA, my first three clients were building trades unions. It was Glazer's Local 181, Bricklayer's Local 16, and IBW Local 673. And I think at that time, I'm not sure that any of them even had a female member. Maybe they had one or two among all of them collectively. So I thought it was a pretty courageous thing for them to decide at that point that they were going to hire a young woman lawyer to represent them. And and that was risky for them. And I'll, again, for, be forever grateful to them as well as the CWA. So that time, again, we're talking mid-80s here. Um, how were you treated? How were how you accepted at that time? And I bring that up, you know, here, well, it was a man's world. It's still a man's world in so many respects. I'm just wondering, being the fact that you're a young female, you're trying to run your own law firm, make some history besides as far as being the only union-sided law firm that 
was being operated by a woman. What what was the scenario like back then? Well, that's a great question, Flash. Uh, it it was interesting because I, it both was uh, hard and for all the reasons that we hear about so often about sexual harassment and people uh, acting it and saying and doing inappropriate things. And I certainly had my share of being on the receiving end of that. But I also feel that being female really made me stand out in a way that it might have been a lot harder starting this firm if I were a young man. I think that I was such an oddity as a female doing this that I think that people remembered me. And and as I said, that with some of those early construction unions in my firm, they I think they sought me out because because I was a woman. And so I think that what I've learned to do over the, these years is to take advantage of that when it's helpful and to have a thick skin for those times when it isn't. Um, I think that, you know, you're right. It has definitely been, for me, a career of being a woman in mostly a man's environment. Uh, but I think that there have been both advantages and disadvantages in, in that role. Mm-hmm. You uh, mentioned that you even went on the picket line. Was, was that an unusual sight for some people? I say, what's this? What's this woman here? Oh, wait, she's even a lawyer. What's she doing here? Did that kind of thing happen back then? Yes, of course it did. And, uh, and you know, again, on construction union picket lines, they're, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, usually early seven o'clock and before people are going to work on these construction jobs. And so I think that uh, people just, just didn't expect a young woman to be showing up and, and speaking their language and understanding their challenges and concerns and why they were out there picketing and appreciating the importance of unions and standing in solidarity with them. Joyce, let's uh, forward to a time I, I, I was reading earlier in your bio that you are a past board member of hard-hatted women. And uh, yeah, I recall that organization. We've talked about them several times on the show. I I don't even know if they're still around. Do you know if they're still around? And and maybe you can reflect on the time that you uh, were a board member at that time. Yes, I loved being a board member of hard-hatted women. It was uh, an organization. I don't think it exists anymore, but it was an organization that existed to bring women into uh, non-traditional trades for women and particularly in the construction industry, but also in uh, industrial workplaces as well. And, uh, and it was a great organization because what they did was they reached out to particularly to young girls, to high school girls and girls who maybe weren't interested in going to college, but would like to go into the trades and needed a little bit of support and encouragement to do that. And hard-headed women did that for them and then did that on an ongoing basis for women who were employed in the trades. And they were there to provide support to them, uh, training and, and so forth. And when I was a board member, what I was particularly excited to do was to actually bring men onto the board of hard-headed women who were union officials. Because Mm -hmm. at the time that I was on the board, hard-headed women only had women on the board. And I felt that it would, for women to advance in the trades, they had to do it 
through the unions, and those unions were all run by men. And it seemed important to me to bring at least some of the more progressive, sympathetic men onto the board, not, you know, in a way that they would dominate, but at least to have their voice and perspective and their buy-in to then help the women who were active and hard-headed women to find jobs and, and build union careers and not just careers in as construction workers in the non-union sector. Joyce Goldstein of JoyceGoldsteinLaw.com, the first woman in the United States to start a union-side labor law firm. Now, you mentioned that the, the AFL... CIO picked up on that. Any, any, uh, anybody else pick up that over the years? I mean, that's pretty significant, especially this month we're celebrating Women's History Month. Well, I think that the happy news is that there have been a lot of other women since who have become union side labor lawyers, either by starting their own firms or joining other existing firms. And uh, it's exciting to see that women are continuing to do this important work. Yeah. Any advice? for a, a, a young female, maybe she's going through law school right now. Uh, any advice you could give that person? I mean, you did this back in the 80s. Here it is, 2023. Different kind of world today, but what's your thoughts on that, Joyce? Well, there is an organization that's called the Peggy Browning Fund, and Peggy Browning was uh, the, the first, uh, well, one of the first uh, members of the National Labor Relations Board and had been a union side lawyer in Philadelphia. Uh, she passed away at a very early age, but after, in her honor, there was this foundation that was created to help young lawyers become union side labor lawyers. And so I think that the Peggy Browning Fund is probably the best way for people who are in law school now who are interested in learning more about union side labor law and getting jobs and, uh, and participating in an organization with other people who will help and support them and guide them in that career. All right. Well, thank you for the advice. Joyce Goldstein, JoyceGoldsteinLaw.com for more information. Thank you so much for, uh, for what you're doing for all of labor, male, female, everybody involved. And I, I really, I think it's cool that you're the first woman in the country to start a union side labor law firm. Very cool. And it's right here on America's Workforce as one of our regular show guests. You take care, stay safe, and stay strong, okay? Thank you. You too. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, we check in with the heat and frost insulators and the service employees, Local One. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.